0: menopause, perimenopause. These can be some of the most uncomfortable phases of a woman's life. If you find yourself in either of these, well, Hormone Harmony is here for you. Hormone Harmony capsules contain science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to
1: any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. And that means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it really shows. And get this. Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any woman with symptoms
0: of hormonal imbalances can take it. But it is perfect for those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold.
1: And for a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code DRESSED at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code DRESSED for 15% off today. April, Mother's Day is just around the corner. Do you know what you are doing for your mom this year? I sure do. This year, I'm gifting her my
0: life in a book, which is this very cool service that will allow her to turn her life stories into a beautiful printed book, complete with her own photos of significant
1: moments in her life. Yes, this is so amazing. And dress listeners, here is how it works. So once a week, mylifeinabook.com will send your mom a question via email. And these can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions that you wish to ask. And then your mom can either type her response or she can use their voice to text feature and mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. So join us and check out mylifeinabook.com and use the
0: code DRESSED at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code DRESSED for 10% off today. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world,
1: we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April
0: Callahan. Cass, as much of our audience knows by now, you recently had your first baby, baby Leo. And alas, you have entered the inner
1: sanctum of the joys of motherhood. So how are things going presently? <laughs> things presently are going very well. He's getting, he's about four months old now, and he's super squishy and chunky and adorable. So things are going very well. Thank you for checking yes. in. <laughs> the
0: cutest little fat rolls on his arms. Yes. I love them.
1: Dimpled knees and elbows. So <laughs> we're in love and having a blast. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, um, watching your pregnancy from afar was fascinating for me. Actually, very rarely did you ever send me photos of your growing belly. And we're always video chatting. So I saw (laughs) you. But really, did I get to see the physical changes to the lower portion of your body? But what I did see, however, was the growing amount of baby stuff that was slowly accumulating over time behind you in your home office.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we're constantly joking, right? I'm like, oh, look, there's the baby bath and there's the crib. And it was just, yeah, a massive, a massive amount of stuff. Um, It's kind of amazing how much you accumulate, willingly or not, because people give you a lot of things you don't ask for (laughs) when you're prepared. For a baby, and dress listeners, while it might initially disappoint some of you that today's episode isn't devoted entirely to maternity wear, I think you will be just as delighted to learn about an even broader spectrum of the material culture designed to aid and support the reproductive process. You know, the so-called stuff of fertility, pregnancy, birth, and beyond. And while these objects was to fill many of our homes and shape some of our
0: daily lives, you know they are evidence of one of the most universal of human experiences. And yet, they are very rarely subjected to the lens of scholarly inquiry. But this is exactly what we're going to tease out today, as our guests note, quote, design history must go beyond the physical walls of the museum or the printed page to consider, as this project does, the social, scientific, and political implications of
1: objects. Which we all know we love on Dressed. So today, we are so thrilled to have design historians Michelle Miller-Fisher and Amber Winnick join us. Michelle Miller-Fisher currently serves as the Ronald C. and Anita L. Warnick Curator of Contemporary Decorative Arts at the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston. And Amber Winnick is fresh off her second Fulbright Award. And in addition to her MA in Design History, she also holds degrees in Child Development and Cultural Anthropology. And they are the co-creators of the Designing Motherhood exhibition currently on view at the Mass Art Art Museum in Boston. And that is on view through the end of this year, 2022. So, Michelle and... we cannot wait to learn more. Welcome to Dressed.
0: Ladies, a very warm welcome to Dressed to you both. Thank you. Thanks for having us, April. Yes, thank you, April. Yes, of course. I'm very excited about our conversation today. And um, before we dive into our topic at hand, which I'm sure has perked the interest of more than a few of our listeners who have children. I'm hoping that you both might introduce yourselves and also speak a little bit about your career paths to becoming design historians.
2: Absolutely. We are one brain at this point in time. So (laughs) ask each other at the beginning of these conversations is, do you want to go first or shall I?
3: (laughs) Um, Yes. Yeah. um, Tried and true. I'd be happy to go first, actually. So I'm Amber. I am a design historian and writer um, based in New York's Hudson Valley. And yeah, my path to becoming a design historian, you know, it's funny because tomorrow is actually my dad's birthday and he's been gone for 12 years now. Um, But I've actually been reflecting on how much being his daughter has helped shape my path To becoming a design historian. Um, My dad, Bruce, actually had retinitis pigmentosa, which made the cells in the retina break down slowly over time, causing vision loss. And RP is a genetic disease that people are born with. And my dad's vision declined significantly during my childhood. So he was legally blind by the time I was a teenager. But despite his blindness, my dad was a super visual person. And he grew up in Brooklyn and spent a lot of his young life, going to places like the Metropolitan Museum of Art and other, other um, collections. And I think as his vision declined, artwork, objects, museums, these became super important touchstones for him and something that we really, really shared. And, uh, you know, I think a core part of our dynamic was going to see things together. So, museums, antique stores, uh, gardens. I grew up in Miami, so tons to look at in terms of deco architecture. And yeah, my job was really to describe what I was seeing for my father, and we discussed them. So we talked about the way that they looked, like formal elements like color, shape, and texture, but we'd also talk about historical context, cultural, religious, political forces that helped shape the way things came to be in the world. And I'm convinced that I developed a love of design and material culture as a result. Bruce actually passed away the first week of my graduate school uh, for design history, and I really carry him with me throughout my career. And it's funny, actually, because I was pregnant with my first daughter, Alice, when I graduated. So that led me to work on a very early, early iteration of designing motherhood. So... Family members have definitely helped shape every aspect of my career. And I know that's true for you as well, Michelle.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I love that story. Um, But I would say my mom had a similar helping hand in where I've ended up now. I went to school to study English and Scottish literature, and I really didn't have a conception of museums, of a curatorial career. of I didn't even really know what art history was or design history was. My mom uh, did not get an education. She left school at 15 and I uh, was very, very gung ho about her three children. I'm the eldest getting um, a little bit more than she did. And so she really encouraged us. And a lot of what she would do was take us to national trust properties at home. And so uh, much like Amber and her dad, Bruce, my mom, um, Ellie, and I and my two siblings would go look at the ways that other people lived. Um, being able to see inside the front room of Thomas Hardy's house, or will go to the Sissinghurst Gardens or uh, you know, go see something much fancier like a Scottish castle. It was a way to look at the material culture of everybody's lives and everyday lives. And I loved that. I did not know you could study it until I met an amazing design historian when I was 19 years old at Glasgow University called Juliet Kinchin, And she changed my life. Um, she She showed me what design history was. The classes were much smaller. I absolutely loved it. She uh, told me about something called graduate school and that I could (laughs) scholarship to go. Um, And uh, then eventually I ended up working for her and Paola Antonelli at MoMA. And so I learned what it was to be a curator of this kind of work. So uh, that is sort of a brief way of ending up there. Although I will say, and I think it's the same for Amber, it took a lot of twists and turns. It was not a linear career path by any means. I was still nannying into my early 30s when I wanted to have kids of my own. I was looking after other people's kids and uh, bartending, doing many other things to have a job within the arts. So I think for both of us, it's never been sort of a, I want to go do this and I'm going to get to go do it. It's it's a twisting path.
0: Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a common scenario with a lot of us who work as design or fashion historians. I like to call it the fashion historian hustle where you have like five jobs until like maybe like 10 years into your career and you're like, okay, now I can quit three of these jobs and I'll only have two. <laughs> that was an affirmative yes, I think, from both of us. <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that your career paths involved both of your parents, um, which kind of pulls us into this particular project, of course. And it was a real labor of love. And I'm going to state for the record that that pun was fully intended. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Can you tell us about how you first came to work together and the origins of the Designing Motherhood concept?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our first meeting happened at my house of all places, because we were celebrating a mutual friend of ours, Jessica, also somebody who studied design, uh, having her baby shower. And Amber brought a really amazing cake. Jessica introduced us, uh, said, oh, you both really like some of the same things. You should talk. We probably waited about a year to be able to go out to dinner with one another. Also with Jessica, actually, maybe it's because she just had a child. (laughs) So she needed a moment um, before she was able to take some time to go have dinner. But either way, we hit it off and realized that we had a very shared passion for this area of design as it connected to this whole arc of human reproduction, and also a deeply shared experience in trying to find space for that passion and often failing to have people find it as interesting as us or to um, not think about it as taboo. But Amber, which parts of that story have I left out of our meeting?
3: No, that was a beautiful, a beautiful rendition. Um one of the things that kind of brought us together was the fact that we were both independently thinking in this space. Um, Michelle was at MoMA at the time and thinking a lot about period technologies and uh, um, breast pumps. And I had just been, you know, trying to make a writing project out of uh, maternity clothing. Mm I found that such a rich area to unfold histories about medicine and women's bodies and attitudes about birth and pregnancy. So, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, we just, we hit it off, you know, it happened very naturally. And every time that we connected either in person or over the phone, it was just, and this, and this, and this and <sighs> early, you know, we had like slips of paper, like taped to the wall and, ideas for how our collaboration could be structured and really spent i would say like uh, the better part of a year kind of talking about what it is what it could be before anything really got <laughs> super serious right um and i think that long kind of runway was extremely helpful for helping shape what it was because i mean I, I feel very proud of the the structure mm-hmm.
2: of the
3: book and just how we've come to think about things. And I think it was giving ourselves that long gestational period on totally atten- intended there too, uh, <laughs> to really develop it and uh, make it ironclad. So the
0: project is- has different prongs to it. Would you speak a little bit about that? Because if I understand correctly, it first started out almost as a a project on Instagram.
2: Yeah, totally. Mostly April because we took it to publishers and galleries and museums and no one would take it. So we needed to go to a platform where we were able to publish something. So yeah, that was sort of a We had already sent out book proposals and pitched it as an exhibition idea in 2017, 2018. Instagram started in January of 2019 was our first post And it was our favorite, Lucille Ball, wearing a tie-waist skirt, and so it was very fashion-oriented. But we began it on Instagram because we really could get absolutely no traction anywhere else. And I think to to Amber's really great point about it being a long gestation period, it allowed us to really kind of dive into what we thought it would be and we wanted it to be, Mm -hmm. but it also allowed us to build a community of folks around it because we are by no means the first people to think about this. It's kind of wild, actually, that it was still such a taboo subject for institutions because there have been decades and centuries of people practicing in this area, offering direct services in this area, being historians of this area, being activists of this area. And so Instagram was a really wonderful place to sort of think, oh, yeah, we're not alone. We're not crazy. People are interested in this content. And we have a unique angle on it. Nobody had really gone in deep in um, a really systematic way into, well, actually, I wouldn't call that our investigations. <laughs> <laughs> That's maybe giving ourselves too so much credit because we're kind of like octopi. We were, on the, <laughs> um, <laughs> there was a system somewhere to the madness, but Instagram was helpful. So although the idea began as a book project, actually, for both of us, because I I think that's our first love is reading and writing. It developed into an exhibition project when we knew we needed to create uh, a way of audiences meeting it in different ways to market a book very bluntly. Like that that was the thing that publishers were sometimes coming back to us with when they weren't just saying no outright. So Instagram, though, was the sort of first public sharing of what we were looking at. And it was a good working tool for us because we worked on different hours. We we had lots of other things going on in our life. So it was a way to be able to say, hey, asynchronously, this is what I found today. What did you find? And uh, it was a conversation back and forth. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this has been um, an area that's really hiding in plain sight for a long time. And Instagram became a useful tool, not only to kind of continue this conversation asynchronously, as you were saying, but just kind of isolate the objectness of what we were looking at.
0: Yeah, I I totally identify with what you both are saying, because some people may not know this off the bat when they first hear the podcast, but Cass and I have been working together for 10 years. At this point now, we've done two different books together. And pretty much the entire time, she's been in New Mexico and I've been in New York. And that's how we make the podcast too. So so exactly what you're saying, like, oh my gosh, look what I found today. Like, We do that practically every single day.
2: <laughs> oh, so nice. Yeah, it's also really lovely because I think we we have so many shared interests but we also come to this topic from very different places and we're aware that everybody who's coming to designing motherhood also has a different way in and so the divergence of our interests i mean i don't have children i'm trying to but it's it's a long road and has three children so it's very direct experience of what it is to go through um all of the phases the work the labor the emotion of looking after um infants and young children And I think we've always been really interested in uh, finding out the experiences that we don't have listening into them and trying to make a a space for them in the book with our our contributors.
0: So you write in the book that, and I'm quoting you, we all share the universal experience of having been born. And, And this very sentiment shares a lot of commonality with exactly what we do here on the podcast. You know, we start each episode reminding our listeners that there's, you know, 7 billion of us on this planet and almost all of us share this common experience of getting dressed every day. You know, these experiences of dressing your body or dressing other bodies, and of course, birth, um, are universal. And the fact that they are intentionally and carefully constructed is oftentimes overlooked or even intentionally hidden. So you stress in the book that the material culture of human reproduction matters
2: why so so we talk about the material culture of human reproduction mattering to everyone for several reasons as you say everybody is born um and it's wild to us that um not everybody feels like they have a stake in this conversation even though everybody has been touched by birth at least once in their lives now the arc of human reproduction the material culture that surrounds it is really, I mean, there are universal aspects to it to a degree, but it's really unique. It changes uh, based on culture, based on geography, based on socioeconomic experience, based on class, race, all of the other intersections. And I think we care so much about it in a certain way because there's a politics of people feeling divorced from this particular conversation. Um, certainly in the U.S., and we can talk about it, you know, in, in light of the Supreme Court activity over the last year or so, people um, are. Fed this very constructed view of what birth is, of what human reproduction is as a women's issue, as a niche issue, as something that is tied to a religious belief, as something that's tied to other cultural belief. And of course, it is in a certain way, but it is a very careful political construction to divide and conquer, um, to um, create certain wedge issues that then can be politicized, fundraised for, ran on um, for, for, for office um, rather than understanding it as the building blocks of a healthy society, as equity, as something that is part of citizenship, as something that's part of this sort of larger, common, universal human experience, as a project that should and does involve us all. So I think that is one of the reasons we're deeply interested in this material, because it is so um, uh, keenly shaped by people who don't always have, uh, who usually don't have the best interests of the, the greater masses in their sights that is the introduction to the book which we wrote together i think sometimes it leaves both of us speechless too yes. because yeah. it's just like how how can this be like how is it still allowed that this is so inequitable as a system that is so manipulated mm-hmm. in terms of the way we come to these experiences um, it's still like really makes me so sad every single time we think about like the Build Back Better bill and that lousy tiny four weeks of paid family leave that was knocked out of it because it's still so impossible for people to understand that that is one of the foundational needs that we have in this country to have equity in terms of people getting paid for labor, uh, the labor of of raising our next citizens. So, I mean, I'm really happy to hear about student debt and all of those other things, but this is equally, if not more important as an issue. It touches absolutely everyone. Not everyone has had a college experience. Um, uh, Everyone has been born.
0: Yeah. So we've mentioned the book um, here now a couple times, and it features more than 100 specific designs, which is amazing. Clearly we are not gonna be able to cover all of them today. So what we are gonna do is focus most of our attention on the wearable designs that you touch on. But before we do, uh, would you tell us a little bit about how you structured your investigation and also some of the science and technology themes and concepts that you explore?
3: So the book is structured into four parts, and that includes reproduction, where we look at uh, objects such as the menstrual cup, the pill, charting the menstrual cycle. Uh, I mean, we get into a little bit more abstract ideas, too, like uh, Michelle wrote a gorgeous essay on uh, child-free, the decision to be child-free, protest. Various things, the the test tube baby, um, which touches on science and technology, absolutely. The next section is pregnancy, uh, where we look at prenatal vitamins, pregnancy tests, sonogram, um, and it goes on from there, birth, and finally postpartum. So those four sections really allowed us to kind of unfold various objects, designs, both physical and really societal and structural as well.
0: I learned so much in those sections. I found them completely fascinating. And I'm a little bit heartbroken that we're not going to have time to touch on them today. But that is why the book exists. And that's why readers can go and buy the copy for themselves. Dress listeners, did you know that you can save on
1: everything from fashion to beauty, home decor to groceries, even kids' school supplies with Rakuten? Rakuten is a shopping platform that partners with over 3,500 stores across every category. Beauty, clothing, electronics, home, department stores, pets, you name it. You're already shopping at your favorite stores, so why not be saving while doing it? It really is a no-brainer. How does it work, you ask? Well, stores pay
0: Rakuten a commission for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the commission with its members. You get paid via a check or PayPal quarterly.
1: Membership is free, and it's easy to sign up. So join the 17 million members who have already saved at their favorite brands. Start all your shopping at Rakuten.com or get the Rakuten app to start saving today. Your cash back really adds up. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.com. Dress listeners, whatever your reason
0: for wanting to learn a new language, whether it's an upcoming international adventure, communicating with your friends and family abroad, or even professional purposes,
1: Rosetta Stone has got you covered. As the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years now, you can join millions of Rosetta Stone users to learn any of the 25 languages offered. That includes Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and so many more. And this is fast language acquisition, friends. There are no English
0: translations, so you learn to speak listen and think in your new language and right now you can get lifetime access to all 25 of Rosetta Stone's language courses for 50% off that's language learning for 25 languages for the rest of your life which Cass is frankly amazing.
1: It is. And what are you waiting for, dress listeners? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, dress listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today.
0: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Dress listeners, if you suffer from seasonal allergies like me, Astapro is your
1: new go-to. It has been super helpful to me this spring as it bursts into full bloom. And that's because Astapro is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter solution for nasal allergy symptoms. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray,
0: and Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. You too can get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief like I have with Astapro. It gets me back
1: in the game, ready to record the show for all of you. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O-Allergy.com. pro and Go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies.
0: So clearly because of the nature of the topic of reproduction, you know, a lot of the discussion here today and in the exhibition and in the book is around the quote-unquote internal right? What's happening inside the bodies of birthing persons. But for our purposes today, we are, of course, going to focus on the external and specifically the wearable, you know, the made and corporeal objects that aid and support fertility, gestation, birth, and child rearing. That's what we're going to be talking about today. So I have selected six objects out of a much longer list of the wearable designs that you do cover. Again, I wish we could cover them all, but our time together today is finite. So I'd like to begin with a garment that we have actually mentioned very, very briefly on the show in our first season, and that is the pregnancy corset. And I think that the very thought of this might be initially shocking to some of our listeners and a cause for concern, but this was a very real thing, and perhaps it wasn't as torturesome as one might think. So when and why were women wearing pregnancy corsets?
2: This is such a great question. Um, And I have to, at the very top of my answer, shout out to Lauren Downing-Peters, who I first met, oh gosh. Probably six or seven years ago, she came through a really good friend of mine, Steph Kramer, who's another amazing fashion historian now at the Metz Costume Institute. She came to visit us both where we were working on items as fashion modern at MoMA. And we sat outside in the garden and Lauren talked about, she's finishing her PhD thesis at the time, and she talked about the concept of temporary bodies. And I was totally spellbound because she talked about the way in which dress helps create temporary bodies by cinching, by moving, by you know, massaging in many different ways, by making us taller through heels, etc., and then she talked about the human uh, body as temporary. It changes, you know, through illness, through disability, through age. But also the thing that she gave us an, an example is always one that I come back to. Uh, your body changes after you've eaten lunch. And mine definitely does. My stomach grows. <laughs> wearing something elasticated. And so um, we could think of some, no, no better person to write the essay on the pregnancy corset for the Designing Motherhood book. And Lauren really lays it out. She talks about the corset as being something, at least in the Western world, used from roughly the Renaissance through even to the 1960s. And in pregnancy used because, much like it has always been, for most people, pregnancy is not a condition that can be luxuriated in. You're back out to work, even if you are you know, gestating and doing all of the labor of growing a human. And in doing so, you want to conform to the prevailing dress standards of the day, which for a long time involved some kind of foundation wear that offered a, a structure like a corset. And yes, there's been a lot of back and forth that she notes in the essay as to whether or not this was good for the growing fetus or not. Some pregnancy corsets, especially in the latter 19th century and early 20th century, were marketed as being good for a healthy pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Um, You did have some doctors in that period of time starting to say, eh, I'm not, so sure if it's a good idea. But as Lauren points out, it was probably the worst idea if someone was going for really tight lacing, which was a fairly marginal practice. And so, yeah, it was there because much like many other sort of external wearables and external accoutrements of pregnancy, when you were pregnant, you just had to get on with it. And so you needed to get dressed still. And of course, it was part of getting dressed.
0: Yeah, and and very much so at that time, and specifically in the 18th and 19th century, there was a morality aspect to wearing the corset. Yeah.
2: yeah, Vogue actually in I it's I think it's like 1920 ish. Not talking about the pregnancy corset, but talked about maternity wear as a miracle of concealment because being pregnant was a literal sign of sex, and that was not something that was palatable. And so it was to be concealed. Um, even up until you know Lucia Ball and the tie skirt. I always love the um, smock top that uh, goes as part of that two piece because it makes you look like a toilet roll. <laughs> <You're> like, oh, <laughs> Oh. <laughs> um, And it is such a difference to the role models that I think we grew up with. I remember the Spice Girls on stage in their 20s when I was a teenager and two of them were pregnant and they were totally showing their bumps. And this was a moment in time where it changed radically, I think, um, for public presentations of pregnancy. We have a chapter on that in the book. But yeah, the corset was at the time part of the morality code. Yes, absolutely.
0: You also write in the book that, quote, designing a motherhood affirms that there is no monolithic experience for birth for any of the humans involved in the equation. And I really enjoyed learning about some of the pregnancy traditions practiced around the globe that I was not familiar with. So much like the pregnancy corset that's, you know, physically supporting the body, the faja is part of a ceremonial practice in Spanish-speaking countries in the Americas. And you also point out that its practical aspects show up in cultures around the world in addition to that. So what is a faja and how are wraps of this type used in Latinx cultures and beyond?
3: Yeah, so the faja actually comes from the Latin word fascia, which is a thin casing of connective tissue that surrounds uh, and holds Organs, blood vessels, bones, nerves, fibers, muscles in place, basically the material that keeps everything in place within the body. And the faja really acts as an external object. Faja in Spanish speaking Latinx and indigenous culture is any piece of woven fabric used to wrap or bind. Uh, so traditionally, faja was used as part of la cerrada, which is a closing ceremony that represents a symbolic closing after the birth. And it prepares the postpartum person to re-engage with the rest of the world after they've had their period of rest. It's used as a literal wrap with the top just above the iliac crest or hip bones, and the very lower part goes just below the buttocks. So it can be used in a sifting motion to rock the pelvis and uterus back into place after birth. I actually had this done um, because I was very uncomfortable, specifically after my um, this last third pregnancy of mine. And it was super helpful to just kind of help get everything back to, you know, your organs move around. Mm-hmm. Uh, your, your bones have shifted. And this is just one of those very simple technologies that's super useful. Um, So it provides physical support, but also psychic protection at this immensely vulnerable postpartum time when your organs have shifted, but also your identity has shifted. And this is a design we really see across cultures. There's the Malaysian bengkung, the Japanese sarashi, and it's practical in that it provides warmth which is something that the postpartum body needs with all of its loss of blood. And it affects the way that we engage our muscles, reminds us to move in ergonomic ways, you know, the word faha is used for a great many things, um, and this definitely includes very extreme girdles. I think that's a very common association. Actually, since we've written the book, the Surgical Innovation BBL, or Brazilian Butt Lift, has come very much into fashion, and faha plays a major role in supporting bodies that have undergone this form of surgery. Interesting. Yeah, super interesting. Have fun Googling faja with BBL. <laughs> it, it's, it's a minefield. Um, but even without the surgery, fahas are used to help smooth skin, control ab- the abdomen, emphasize the waist, lift the buttocks in this kind of girdle aspect. And the midwife we interviewed, Lisa Guete Vogel, made the point that faja has been repurposed to kind of police postpartum bodies and make them look a certain way part of the getting your body back conversation but at its heart this is an object that's really designed to help the wearer move through a threshold it's about welcoming this new phase of life and honoring and caring for a new body that comes with uh, giving birth
1: Ladies, thanks so much for joining us to chat about your super engrossing project, Designing Motherhood. Dress listeners, we have covered only two of the wearable objects, which are part of our chat with Amber and Michelle. So we will be back with part two this coming Thursday to further our discussion and detail a few more designs behind the reproductive process. However, if you do happen to be in Boston in the next couple of months, you can check out the exhibition for yourself. It's currently on view at the Mass Art Art Museum, Designing Motherhood is its name, and it runs through December eighteenth, 2022, before it travels on to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in Seattle, Washington, and it'll be open there in February of 2023 for the entirety of the rest of next year.
0: For those of you who might not make it to the East or West Coast to visit the exhibition in 2022 or 2023— please check out the wonderful exhibition catalog for Designing Motherhood. There are so many incredible stories behind the material culture of reproduction detailed there. I cannot recommend the catalog enough if your curiosity was perked today. They have so much more to say about, you know, the 94 other objects that we didn't have (laughs) time to discuss today. (laughs) But um, I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the intentionality of the designs hanging in your closet next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us with questions or listener suggestions, you can do so via email at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where we post images accompanying each week's episodes. And if you would like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate it.
1: Just like we appreciate our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each week. We will catch you with more Designing Motherhood on Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the
0: travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator.